Howdy how, this is Aswi and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Yo, what is up, guys? We are back with another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. Today, we got a four-man pod for you guys. I got with me Eric. Yes, sir. I've got AC. Rest in peace to my New York Knicks. <laughs> and we brought on a special guest, as you guys might remember, our resident jazz fan, Abhinav. Hey, what's going on, everyone? And as you guys know, I'm Anushan. So we have a lot, and I mean a lot to talk about. We have some insane news because for the first time ever, the LeBron James, the chosen one, the man who carries the world on his shoulders, has been eliminated in the first round of the playoffs. The Suns beat the Lakers in Game 6 by 13 points, winning 113-100. to Now, there's a lot to unpack here with the game itself, the performances, the schemes employed by the coaches, and the stories afterward and what's to come. We will also highlight another LA team, that being the Los Angeles Clippers, who are in tons of hot water themselves. They're on the verge of being eliminated by Luka and the Mavs. And on top of that, we're also going to talk about the potential of the mantle being shifted from the greatest player right now, which we all thought to be LeBron, to maybe someone else in the league. So guys, I have to ask, what went wrong for the Lakers in Game 6? First off, Anu, you hurting me by mentioning it. LeBron by his sober cats. <laughs> I had to do it, Eric. <laughs> like, it pains me so much because one of the few things that I was able to say to LeBron haters is that, shit, one thing about LeBron, he never lost in the first round. So that damn argument is out the window. But succinctly what did them in? Injuries and lack of consistent rotations. I mean, we can, like... Build from there and, you know, elucidate those points. But I, I think that's a pretty succinct synopsis about what went wrong. Yeah, I mean, the Lakers season, it's kind of incredible how quickly it turned, right? I mean, we've had plenty of pods several months ago where we talked about the Lakers as one of the championship favorites. And they had all the makings of a team that was ready to repeat. But ultimately, the short offseason seems to have been their undoing and, and sort of this compressed season we have this year because Anthony Davis goes out several months ago, then LeBron goes out and the team kind of just stays afloat. They make some random moves to kind of shore up their weaknesses like adding Andre Drummond. But the lack of continuity with all the new additions that were made in the offseason really came to bear in this series. And ultimately, this team only goes as far as Anthony Davis and LeBron take them. And when AD was unable to play, if you look back in game four, the Lakers were up by 11. Alex Caruso was throwing the ball off the backboard to LeBron James, who was you know, kind of posing while he was catching the alley-oop. And then AD gets hurt and the whole thing swings around. And without LeBron and AD playing at the top level, and I don't think LeBron ever reached that level either, the rest of the roster's limitations started to come to bear, especially as KCP got hurt. And then in this game, game six, Alex Caruso got hurt. You start having to play guys like Tellenhorn Tucker in roles that they are not accustomed to being in, and the bottom kind of falls out. I just want to add on to that, that I just don't think the additions that the Lakers made really help them or made any sense because signing Andre Drummond I wasn't too big on it and I just didn't think it worked I mean you know he had a reputation for just being a stats guy that couldn't really contribute to a team in a positive way and he played 
very bad defense. He couldn't really do anything. He didn't even rebound the thing that they needed, and he wasn't even doing that. And I also don't think like Gasol was like much help either. I mean, it didn't help that when he got um uh, diagnosed with um COVID and he had to like miss a few games, and then he was in really bad shape afterwards. But it just seemed that Marcus All was really bad when it came to guarding the the pick and roll. Whenever Gasol was on a switch, he was getting burned every single time. You know, you bring up a good point, Obi, about the COVID issues that they were having because as you guys remember Dennis Schroeder also had contracted COVID and he had to take some time away from the team and when he came back initially it didn't seem like he was really the same player and Schroeder himself actually got a lot of flack and went through a lot of things these past couple games for not really showing up he was good in their wins but he was absolutely horrendous in their losses today I I think he had an all right game it wasn't the best he was minus nine in total because again well Lakers were struggling in general he had 20 points tonight and he shot the ball pretty poorly shooting six or 14 so I think a guy like that especially when AD goes down you need someone like him to step up and I also said this in the past when we were talking about the Lakers struggles because of their injuries and the COVID protocols and whatnot back when LeBron and AD were out I said that Dennis Schroeder needed to be a player who contributed huge for them in order for them to have any sort of shot at in the regular season actually getting to a good playoff seating but in the playoffs actually keep going far because if a guy like AD who we know is injury prone gets injured in the playoffs as we've we've seen in the first round and a guy like LeBron who is you know getting up there in age and it's hard for him to carry all the burden of everyone then a guy like Schroeder who is conceivably one of the higher options on offense for them he's a guy who needs to contribute game in and game out and play good defense as well and I don't know Schroeder to me this was not consistent I think that he's a major culprit but there's a lot of things that also went wrong for the Lakers yeah to add on to that I just don't think Schroeder was the third option that the Lakers needed him to be and Not to mention that he just flamed out from the three-point line. He missed almost all of his threes, like his wide-open threes too. Defensively, though, I did think he was okay, but missing those up, like open shots down the stretch really, really, really hurt the Lakers tonight and all the other games in which they lost. So if I was doing an exit report for the Lakers, I would start from tone setting at the beginning of the season and then work my way chronologically to their failures in the postseason. And the first thing I would start with, since we mentioned Dennis Schroeder, was the fact that it seemed to me that Dennis Schroeder set some tone of discontent and disorder. The like Within days of him being signed, the Lakers signed him to be this great sixth man, and he almost unilaterally <laughs> dictated to the team that he was going to be their starter. And he was an all-world sixth man last year for the Oklahoma City Thunder. As the Lakers starting point guard, he was just eh, so-so this year. He wasn't bad. He was actually very good on defense. Offensively, he was never great. He played in a starting lineup that when they were healthy, had the best plus minus in the league. But I'm not exactly sure that lineup wouldn't have been great if they had substituted Dennis Schroeder for someone like, I'm spitballing here, Alex Caruso. So Dennis Schroeder, to me, set a standard of, I dare I say it, selfishness that didn't exactly exist as much on last year's team that somewhat had some type of play in this team's like, I'm not going to say locker room-like connection, but more like their on-court 
continuity and they're on court silly. That's a fantastic point, Eric, because if you really look at his skill set, Dennis Schroeder is another slasher. That, that's not exactly what you need next to a guy like LeBron James, who's going to create the offense himself. And when Dennis has the ball, his decision-making has always been questionable. Now, he made up for that throughout the regular season with fantastic individual defense and energy and effort. But Abi, you mentioned that you thought Dennis was solid on defense. I think that he was pretty much terrible on defense this whole series until the second half of this last game, game six. This is when he finally showed what he shown throughout the season, his ability to full court pressure and, and make various decisions. He was picked on quite a bit and he made a lot of mistakes throughout the series. And offensively, it's not just that he was missing threes. It's that he was pump faking wide open threes, which has a terrible negative impact on an overall team. And I, I agree with you, Eric, especially when it came to the way that he was playing these last few games. He probably should have been coming off the bench ultimately. But I, I guess when, with AD hampered and everything else, they just needed some sort of scoring boost too. So another guy who I, I feel like would have been very impactful this playoff series, but was also coming off a little bit of injuries was KCP, Contavious Caldwell-Pope. Now he's a guy who actually had a very good showing in today's game. He scored 19 points today. He shot a seven for 11 from the field, uh, with shooting three for six from three point line. And he was also pretty solid on defense for the most part, even though he was the primary assignment on Booker who had an incredible game. But for the most part, KCP was solid, but he was just never healthy for the series. So I just want to get you guys thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, KCP, in my opinion, was the third best player on the Lakers team last year in their postseason run. I know people might think it's Rondo or whoever else, but really it was KCP because the guy brings so many things. He's one of the best lock and trail guys in the NBA. He chased around shooters very, very well when he's completely healthy, like the way he did to Duncan Robinson in last year's playoffs. He's also a huge part of their transition game because he's so fast. And, and finally, he's become a pretty reliable three-point shooter, shooting 40% from three this year and having a great run and making some big shots in the playoffs last year. So his absence was very costly. I also want to mention something else that Eric said about the tone setting about this team. Another area where that came to bear, in my opinion, was trying in some ways to pigeonhole Andre Drummond. You know, I'll be mentioned Andre Drummond kind of coming in and not really fitting the identity of the team. But just as troublesome was his idea that he would be a starter no matter what. Because they had this great starting lineup with Marcus Hall and, you know, with Schroeder and AD and KCP and LeBron. And of course, with injuries, they couldn't play that lineup. But to just move Marcus Gasol from the starting lineup to completely out of the rotation, and only when their backs were totally against the wall did he come back, it just totally messed up their chemistry as a team. And again, just like how Schroeder doesn't really help LeBron be LeBron, Drummond doesn't really help either LeBron or AD or Schroeder because he's taking up th that exact area they need to be in. So fundamentally, this idea that they went away from what won them the championship last year, which was AD playing a lot of minutes, 60% of his minutes at the five and LeBron at the four, they barely went to those lineups this season. And ultimately, of course, Anthony Davis ends up being hurt, but they couldn't find a good lineup, any kind of consistency in part because of these decisions to play Drummond and maybe to protect Anthony Davis, but then just to force feed a guy in Drummond who probably didn't deserve those minutes. I'm not going to lie, guys. I have given Vogel, the head coach, the benefit of the doubt with some of his like very strange <laughs> lineup adjustments historically, but it seemed to me this series, when compounded with last year's, and each round I'm talking about, last year's initial games in each round where he, for whatever reason, he had like lineups 
that were obviously not going to work. And last year was just playing big men at the expense of allowing, as AC said, AD to play the five and LeBron to play the four. And this year it was pigeonholing Drummond for whatever reason, even though there was enough of a sample size that at least point to him not working with AD. I, I'm starting to think that he might have won a championship in some ways last year in spite of himself. Because I, I can't fathom why he didn't, at the very least, utilize until game six in a closeout game the lineup that had the best plus minus when healthy together during the regular season. Yeah, I mean, this idea that Frank Vogel starts every series with this vanilla, not just rotations, but schemes, and then adjust from there. Listen, that's all good and well if you end up winning in five or six. But I bet you, in retrospect, the Lakers would love to have game one when they still had AD healthy and, and LeBron healthy. If that happened, then we could be in a situation where they could have rested AD a few more games and maybe really gone for this in game seven. You don't just punt playoff games and then try to catch up from behind. And I thought that we all knew what lineups did not work for the Lakers, and they had to kind of use them anyway and have them fail to go away from them. The problem with that is you're also messing with guys' egos too, right? Because now a guy is starting one day, and now they're getting yanked out of the rotation the next day. And also their rhythms, right? Especially in the reverse situation where someone like, say, Gasol doesn't get enough minutes in the start of this series, and then now has to play a big role, but he hasn't been playing enough. Or a guy like Harrell, who kind of inexplicably either plays or doesn't play and it's just, it's been so haphazard now i won't go as far as eric to say that last year vogel won in spite of himself i thought he made some amazing defensive adjustments and even this year it's kind of a testament to his ability as a defensive mastermind to have this lakers team be the number one defense from the start to the finish of the season even with ad out lebron out schroeder with COVID absences all the various things they've had so he is a good coach in my opinion but this is something they have to improve on and in general and this is not just vogel but the the lakers and rob polinka they have to find ways to generate a better offense as a whole on the roster right because you have LeBron James and Anthony Davis there should be no reason why even when the, when those guys were healthy this was a, a below average offensive team because they don't have enough shooting around them they don't play lineups that optimize offense you can't be winning in today's NBA with 1990s lineups and rotation so that's a focus for the offseason for sure just to like add on what you were saying AC like I also thought that the spacing was a major issue they just didn't have enough shooting and then they had guys that were I guess supposed to be able to do that like Markeith Morris but they weren't hitting their shot if they're not gonna like contribute on the offensive end at all and Markeith isn't the best defender then he's just kind of out there for nothing and contributing nothing and he's just a huge huge drawback for the team right and again you you mentioned something very important ac and that was sort of the coach needing to establish the players roles right because if you just have guys who are jumping in and out of the lineup and getting roles that they're not accustomed to i.e mark gasol who's supposed to now he only logged in 18 minutes today but effectively yeah, the idea is he has to play very important minutes when it's not something that he's been doing consistently this whole season it's like you're putting these guys in positions to fail and we've seen with a lot of successful teams in the NBA but even with the Lakers last year these roles were already defined for them everyone knew what they needed to do and like you said when the games mattered when those last final possessions where did AD play he played at the five he played in a set rotation with pieces that were very consistent usually you'd see lineups of LeBron Rondo would sometimes get into this lineup Caruso KCP Danny Green Danny Green another guy yeah so you see guys who know 
who is going to be playing in those final minutes and who are going to be playing in specific slots during the games, which is very important. Who, what rotation are you running with, you know, in the second quarter, eight minutes to go at the eight minute mark, right? So these things are very important to know. And sometimes, yes, they need to be adjusted based on the flow of the game. But when things are just so random and no one, like now Wes Matthews all of a sudden today, he gets huge minutes to log in, but he's also been rather inconsistent in the lineup. So it's just like, these are guys who just haven't had that, while they've played many NBA games, you know, they haven't had that consistent login of minutes to really be as effective as you'd want them to be. So I do think it's very important and it's, it's kind of unfortunate that Vogel had to kind of juggled this on the fly and not really have anything set in stone and to be fair to vogel this has been a really weird season with tons of guys coming in out of the lineup and almost no practice time because of how short the season is and how compressed it's all been right so it's not like he could have gotten guys behind the scenes practice time to run sets and do all those things so it's been a challenging season for the entire nba but that's even more reason to have some consistency you know you mentioned wes matthews this guy was literally out of the rotation for a significant chunk of the regular season and now here he is in the critical games playing a big role well he doesn't have the reps with lebron he doesn't have the reps with mark gasol who now is supposed to make high elbow passes but no one has played with him like that for months so now it, it you know it's kind of absurd to expect him at this stage to suddenly be able to perform at the level needed to stave off elimination so the only thing i want to say in addendum to the fact that this season didn't allow them to necessarily play around with rotations. They needed to build continuity fast and like integrating a bunch of disparate pieces and not having consistent rotations seemed like a death nail. I just want to point out the NBA with its scheduling really fucked over the teams that were successful in last year's playoffs. That's very true. Because if you look at it, the teams that are doing well right now are teams like the Nets that were out of the playoffs early and their two best players coming into the season. Kevin Durant didn't play at all and Kyrie didn't play much. And James Harden, he was on another team that had a quick second round exit. The Bucks were out of the playoffs after the second round quickly. The Mavericks, who are doing great against the Clippers team that they pushed pretty well last year, they were out in the first round. So the teams that you actually see doing well are teams that were out of the playoffs, if they were even in the playoffs, very, very, very quickly. And the NBA, in their haste to kind of account for revenue dollars and assure that they weren't losing out on money that was on the table, they kind of pushed the season a little, not a little earlier, actually fairly dramatically earlier that guys who were on the Heat or the Lakers actually thought the season was going to commence. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That's a very good point. Just don't forget the Jazz. <laughs> I mean, yeah. wait, you mean don't forget them as far as talking to them or don't forget them because they... They were also out early. Oh, okay, because that's what I, I'm trying to figure out. Okay, got you. Yeah, the Jazz... All, because Abhi wants me to point out the Jazz also <laughs> were out of the playoffs after the first round. Thus, we can see that they're doing a lot better than they did last year. <laughs> Yeah, Eric, your theory is getting a lot of <laughs> credentials here. <laughs> I had to plug my boys and I, I just had to. I couldn't forget that. <laughs> so we've gone a bit here, only talking about the Lakers. 
and this is to Eric's theory about teams that didn't go far last year, the Suns, they were red hot in the pre-playoff portion of the bubble, but they couldn't make it into the playoffs last year. And this year they added Chris Paul, they added some now pretty obviously good pieces such as Jay Crowder. And the Suns here kind of a little bit shockingly knocked out the defending champs in round one. A lot of people thought the Suns were probably the easiest opponent in the West out amongst the top teams. And maybe they're not, or I don't know. What do you guys think about the Suns? I was very impressed considering that this is like the very first playoff series that we're going to see from Devin Booker. And he killed it. He was on fire, like for like all like um like six games they played. Like it was it was insane. I was also really like impressed with Cameron Payne as well because the guy just like came into like every game and he played with such like intensity. He was giving like ten plus points like almost like every night, and it was it was just great to see. I was also really impressed with um uh, Jay Crowder. He was doing his job. He was playing defense and making threes when they mattered. And DeAndre Ayton also did a really good job grabbing boards, and he was like really good with Chris Paul in the pick and roll. Yeah, to me the the story of this playoffs in terms of guys who have exceeded expectations is DeAndre Ayton because it's very difficult for a young big man to grasp all the nuances of pick and roll defense and also offense, right? Like he played completely within himself. This guy shot in some games 80 plus, 90 plus percent from the field. He could barely miss. Granted, it was mostly dunks and close shots, but that's even more to his credit because he wasn't taking anything that was outside of his game. He was really good defensively throughout the series too, which I did not expect. Now it helped that Anthony Davis got hurt, I'm sure, but he totally outplayed all the other non ad big men on the Lakers and you could argue he was one of the best players in the entire series on both teams and obviously Devin Booker was spectacular in their wins and and today it, it was important for the ages to drop 47 points on the road he took the Lakers life out of them and Chris Paul gutted it out too man I mean this guy clearly had a bum shoulder even today, you could see on some of his long distance shots, he was almost forcing these shots where he was pushing the ball to try to make up for his injury a little bit. And so you don't see that with Chris Paul, a guy who has an extremely pure jump shot, but he gutted it out. He led that team. I, I don't think they would have beat the Lakers if Chris Paul gave them zero minutes in these last few games. They needed him to make the decisions down the stretch like he did in the fourth quarter today. So props to him. Yeah, just outright the the guards on the Suns just outplay the guards on the Lakers. Yeah, guys. So Devin Booker, I expected him to do well in this playoff series, but I didn't expect him to play like this. And I still remember like in the regular season, I had initially thought that Devin Booker deserved to be an all-star because the way that the Suns team plays, a lot of the pace and control is done through Chris Paul. And we've saw we've seen that in the series. But the guy who's there to make and take these ridiculous shots. And some might argue they're not high percentage shots and totally fine with that argument. But a guy who's going to take and make shots like that is going to be huge for you in the playoffs. And we've we've seen that here because having that ability to hit those shots opens up the game for everyone else. And we saw that in this playoff series because not only did Devin Booker play well, Chris Paul, as AC said, it was great. He was fantastic. And when it really mattered, he came through with some really big plays, very high IQ plays, not taking bad shots and always looking for the open man. He had a bunch of great assists to lead to three-point shots. And a guy like Aiton, who was fantastic, the man in the middle, you need a big, strong presence, especially when you go up against a team that has very, well, I would say two extremely high-quality big men in Marcus Gasol, especially Anthony Davis, obviously AD injured. But to me, what I found great about the Suns team, and I even said this previously, was how good the role players were. Cam Johnson, fantastic. 
fantastic today. Jay Crowder, fantastic. I thought campaign throughout the series really showed us what he's made of. I mean, at one point, I believe this guy was out of the league and, you know, <laughs> the season just came and really showed out. We, we saw that his quickness, his ability to get to the rim, coupled with his ability to shoot was, was fantastic. And defensively, he was great too. He, he totaled three blocks today. So, bro, yeah. Undershot. Yeah. This guy campaign. He was more known for his absurd dances with Russell Westbrook <laughs> than his basketball ability. That's very true. That's what most people in the NBA knew him for, right? I mean, he was kind of a joke in the league. And now he outplayed Dennis Schroeder, the reigning runner-up to the six-man of the Ellies from last season, in a playoff series. And to me, right, like, I, I love that because you, you can see with him playing with great guards, obviously with Chris Paul and Devin Booker, it, it seems like he's actually learned so much about how to win games, how to sort of conduct himself and how to be a leader on, on a team that is very young. It's, it's an up and coming team. And it, honestly, just fantastic. I, I, I'd never expected campaign to be this kind of player. But my main point being, I'm so impressed with how the role players played in this series, because to me, those guys made the big plays when he counted and i think the main core of chris paul devin booker and aiden is one to be feared in the west for sure yeah i totally agree with you i think another interesting guy that played pretty good minutes when he was out there was frank kaminsky which i was not expecting at all like i guess they had to play him since Sarge did not play well during the series, but he gave some pretty good minutes. He was playing some very good defense, and he was pretty good screen setter as well. So another good like piece and like role player that they have. Yeah, and coming into this series, I'll be the Kaminsky Sarge combo as the backup fives was viewed as a massive weakness especially against LA's front line which in theory should have been able to exploit it of course injuries play a factor but I agree they were very solid and overall the, the team really didn't make any mistakes and one other guy I, I really think deserves a special shout out though is Mikhail Bridges who is emerging as one of the best young role players in the NBA one of the big adjustments that was made once AD went out it allowed Jay Crowder to go on to LeBron instead of guarding Anthony Davis, which then let Mikhail Bridges be the main defender on Dennis Schroeder. And I think he did a really good job of limiting Schroeder's drives and kind of like even when he would close out, he'd close out halfway and almost dare Schroeder to shoot. His game plan discipline is incredible for a young player. You know, you see this all the time where young players like look at look at Telenora Tucker. The guy has a lot of talent and he projects to be a solid defensive player too eventually because of his frame and his strength and frankly his mass. He's a pretty heavy player and he's got long arms, but he makes a lot of dumb mistakes. He'll do things like close out and, and double from the strong side corner, which you should never do in almost any scheme. Bridges doesn't make those mistakes and he, he just really solid overall as a defender and it also felt like this guy would never miss a damn open three every single shot he took I, I mean i'm sure he missed some of course statistically but it felt like every single corner three especially that mikhail Burgess took he made for sure and i think it also goes without saying another person who we have to give a lot of the credit to is monty williams i think this year he's been incredible i don't even know if i would say he outcoached vogel but i feel like at points you could say it felt like that just because he took advantage of a lot of the lineup changes even when when they put LeBron at the five in today's game. You know, Monty Williams didn't sort of just sit in this idea, okay, I need to keep Aiton out there for the size. He started adjusting his lineups accordingly. So I thought Monty Williams, as far as a rotation standpoint, did a good job. But I also thought as far as a defensive scheme, he did great today because as you guys have watched with me today, they did a lot of gapping and they did a lot of pinching today from help side drives, which is really, really good when you have to deal with a guy like LeBron James or even a guy in the first couple minutes, it was AD, granted AD played 
five minutes today. But, you know, we, we could see they didn't want to make things easy. They were very content with letting anyone not named LeBron and, you know, for the five minutes AD beat them. So to me, again, like you could also say the Lakers role players were just awful this series. And that's true. But the scheme and the idea is there to play that kind of defense, which is something that I really appreciate, especially when I'm watching basketball. One thing that I love to see is good defense. And if a coach is able to make those adjustments on the fly, granted, I don't think it's that difficult to make that adjustment against a Lakers team that's shooting bricks out there. But nonetheless, it was a great job by Monty Williams, and I thought he did a great job. Some specific things that Monty Williams did that I thought were really impressive. I mean, you mentioned, Anu, sort of the game plan discipline that they had to just leave shooters open. But it wasn't just they were just a few steps away. They had four to five guys in the paint at all times. That's pretty ballsy, right? Because the Lakers still have guys like Alex Caruso or KCP who shoot 40% from three. They just didn't in this series. So that takes a lot of courage to make that kind of a call. But also some other things they did, right? Offensively, they would attack the Lakers big men over and over again, whether it was in the Spain pick and rolls where they had Chris Paul, Booker, and a big man all working together, exploiting the Lakers traps in various ways. Like if they try to trap Booker up high, they would have even a guy like Jay Crowder, you don't think of as a good passer, they him come up to the nail so he could catch that pass and then easily make the four on three read. They would also, in isolation situations, target someone like Mark Gasol. Like I, I think I thought Mark Gasol, who obviously plays an important role for the Lakers offensively, had a pretty bad series overall because he was targeted so ruthlessly by the Suns. Monty Williams was fantastic. I'm glad you brought him up. Yeah, I agree on all those points. The only thing that I didn't like about what Monty Williams was doing today was I thought his timeout usage just for today wasn't too good because I remember going into the half, he still had all six of his timeouts, but and this was when the Lakers were trying to make their comeback and they were trying to play harder, they had more energy, they were getting some life. And before he called his next timeout, the Lakers were only down by 13 and they were like up by like close to like 30 before. So I think Williams should have done a better job using his timeouts. I think for the future series, Monty is going to have to do a better job at managing his timeouts and using them more accordingly. Because against a more offensively sound team like the Nuggets or the Mavs or the Jazz, if he's not calling his timeouts during these runs, then I think he's going to have a lot of problems. And there's I'll not. Be, I be like problems. how you subconsciously eliminated the Clippers already. Eric, so you watched this Suns team kind of beat up on your Lakers. How do you project them kind of going forward? Do they have a legitimate chance to come out of the West? Should they be the favorites out of the remaining West teams? What do you think? So I just want to preface this by saying, now that the season is over, I have always (laughs) hated the Lakers franchise. I'm just a LeBron James fan. So I follow him wherever he goes. The, The Lakers are not my team, but... LeBron is the person I follow. So I I feel very comfortable now that they've lost jumping ship at at least for the summer. So that being said, I mean, the Suns, I like a lot of their young pieces. I like how they fit. I don't see them getting particularly far in this year's playoffs. I, I think beating the Lakers was a great building block for next year and the years beyond. I don't see a situation where they're, really getting out of even the second round. I think they had a perfect storm of events where they faced the Lakers team that was really, really beat up. And now here we are. Who thought we would have been here, but we're here now. So yeah, no, I I don't think they're getting out of the second round. 
No. So, Eric, you obviously mentioned LeBron as you are a huge LeBron stand, and this series was heavily predicated on, of course, Anthony Davis, but how LeBron James would play himself. So I'm curious to know what your thoughts are of how LeBron played this series, what you saw, and what you hope to have maybe seen. Well, he couldn't jump. <laughs> so <laughs> when, you take a- <laughs> when you take away the fact that he couldn't jump, it seemed to me that he was injured still. And he came back and forced himself back because they were within, you know, arm's reach of the playoffs. And then when he got to the playoffs, he was limited. Now, limited LeBron can still give you something like 25 per game and seven assists. But if you compare that to the LeBron and lesser minutes we saw in the regular season when he was healthy, when he was vying for one or two on the MVP hierarchy, or if you compare it to last year's playoffs, that version of LeBron, I I don't see how anyone could look at those versions of LeBron versus this version and not clearly see some type of demarcation and the fact that he wasn't up to snuff. Yeah, LeBron James just didn't look like LeBron. And I'm assuming that's because of injury. And I hope it's not just because Father Time has finally caught up to this guy. I mean, he's played a ridiculous amount of minutes, ridiculous amount of strain on his body. It's not just regular season minutes either. It's long postseason runs. And he's been an Iron Man. He did not look right to me. I don't think he played all that well. I, I get it. He's still LeBron James. His numbers will never look terrible. And he shot the three decently well this series. But it felt like he barely attacked the rim the first three games of this series. Game four, he started to attack the rim more. And game five and six, by that point, the Suns were really just collapsing the paint on him too. But even when he got there, he just didn't have the explosion to really finish. And I know, yes, he got up for an alley-oop dunk. But a one-foot jump when you're running is not the same as a two-foot explosion where you you need to kind of gather yourself and get up. And that's something that LeBron always had in his bag and he didn't have this year. I also think that LeBron's overall on the floor demeanor was was pretty poor, in my opinion. He had pretty terrible body language throughout. And maybe it's because LeBron James just knew. I mean, this guy, we all know he's an extremely smart player. He probably knew like the team just wasn't good enough. But I thought that he kind of always had his shoulders slumped. He had many times where he didn't run back on defense. He had poor closeouts. He just wasn't that dynamic player or leader that we expect him to be. And it's it's remarkable. I know we're going to now move on to speaking about the Mavs and Clippers. When you watch Luka play, it reminds me so much of a LeBron usually plays like in the playoffs. And it's almost striking how little like that he has played. And, and it, that's in part not just because of his injury, but also because his guys weren't making shots. But we're used to LeBron being able to lift his team to another level. He just didn't have that in him this playoffs. Just to add on to a couple of points that you were saying, I do feel that probably just didn't have like the energy that I usually did because he always had to play more minutes because the Lakers looked absolutely pitiful without like him or Anthony Davis like on the floor. And since Anthony Davis was out, he didn't really have a choice but to play those minutes. So he had to play like close to like over 40 minutes a game like every single night. And it, it was just like, I can't even imagine like how like strenuous that must have been. And then when you factor in his age, like it's just not good. But I also didn't like his on-court demeanor as well, like you pointed out, because I feel that that also rubs off on the team and it's just bad morale for them. Because if you see someone that's just always like, you know, shrugging their shoulders, arguing with reps, not getting back, like today, especially when Jay Crowder blocked him and he thought he got fouled, 
he was literally standing there like arguing with the ref while everyone else was running back on defense for the next play. And then because he wasn't there, his man got an open shot. So when he's acting like that, when he's doing all these other, you know, typical like LeBron antics, it's just, just not good for the team overall. I'll leave you with this, guys, really quickly. When you're winning and when you're on and when you're healthy and when you're strong, that shit, it sucks, but it doesn't matter as much. But he sucked. He sucked this series. And frankly, the two forwards, the young guys on the Suns, and I'm not only talking about Mikael Bridges, I'm also talking about Cam Johnson. At huge stretches of the series, both of them were more impactful if you look at their impact on both ends of the court. So that tells you what LeBron was against the Suns. He was there, but he really wasn't there. This was a shitty series for him. Yeah, I mean, you guys encapsulated it as well as I ever could. All the points you said are basically things that I just thought about this series. But let's go from one LA team that is now eliminated in the playoffs to another LA team that is in massive trouble, and that is the Los Angeles Clippers. Guys, Luka has been going absolutely insane after Game 5. The Dallas Mavericks won that game 105-100, to and Luka had 42 points. So I have to ask, what are the hopes for the Clippers now? What can they look to do to sort of claw their way back into this series and force a Game 7? I mean, it has to start with finding out some way to deal with this menace that is Luka Doncic. I mean, this guy, it wasn't just that he scored 42 points, man. I mean, he scored or assisted on 31 of the 37 total field goals that the Mavericks scored. I mean, this is absolute oh <laughs> domination by Luka Doncic. And it begs the question even as to whether the Clippers would have already been eliminated if Luka didn't get injured in games three and four. He clearly was wincing. He couldn't even apparently look to his left, according to Coach Carlisle. But even when he made a pass, he would wince, right? It felt to me in game five, he felt healthy enough that he could dominate this Clippers team that he's done now for two straight postseasons. The man has played 11 career playoff games so far, all against... The vaunted Los Angeles Clippers with Paul George, Patrick Beverly, Kawhi Leonard, etc. And he's dropped 40 points in four of those 11 games, which Jesus. is as much as Tim Duncan, for instance, has scored in his entire career. So this guy is a beast, and I'm not really sure what the Clippers can do to stop him, but obviously it'll start with that. So guys, guess what? There's nothing that the Clippers can do to stop the Mavericks. <laughs> <laughs> this is as inevitable as death for us all. They're, they're going to fail and they're going to lose. They can't guard Luka Doncic. There's nothing they can do. And at this point, we have some sample size in the playoffs to see that whether it's Glenn Rivers, as Oswe would call him, or uh, Tyron Lu, the coach this year, this team's roster is not exactly equipped to win in the playoffs. Good regular season team, very good regular season team. But, I mean, you have a glut of guards that none of them are particularly that great. So you have you have depth, but you don't have like a bunch of really, really good players to complement Kawhi. And I'm saying Kawhi because... Uh, like Paul George himself is just some complimentary guy. Though I will say at times he has played very well this series, even though AC kind of jinxed them last game 
where he pointed <laughs> out that he was playing very well. And then I said, but AC, he's going to fail if he's like asked to be depended on late in the game. And what do we know? Immediately he misses two straight shots and has a turnover within like a minute. So this is not a team that's built to win. And since I think I know that Luka Doncic is some facsimile of a young LeBron James, a young LeBron was a shark. And when a shark smells blood in the water, it kills you. They're going to die. <laughs> They're going to die. <laughs> you know, Eric, you, you mentioned something really interesting, like saying that the the Clippers have no chances, nothing they can do. And, and it's funny because we've pretty much seen the Clippers deploy every sort of defensive scheme to try to throw this guy off, whether it be a blitz, a high trap, trying not to switch, switching, dropping. It, it doesn't even matter because when Luka Doncic is on, <laughs> he's probably as unstoppable as they come in the NBA. And so to me, and this might sound like, you know, I don't want to bring it into existence of it actually happening, but like at this point, the Clippers just need to pray that that neck starts aggravating him again, because if this guy is, you know, playing, I wouldn't say relatively healthy, because he's still playing a bit through his injuries. But if he's playing at this level, there's nothing that the Clippers can do. I, I, I agree. I think they just have to concede and hope that Luka just has a bad game or, you know, he just happens to go to the free throw line and miss a shit ton like LeBron James might do as well. But other than that, I, I just don't know what, what they do. So schematically, I don't know that there is an answer to him. But the way they win these last two games, and I picked even after they lost their first two games, I said Clippers will win this thing in seven. That's still in play here. I don't want that to happen, but I could totally see that happening. And the reason is that Dallas also can't guard the Clippers, right? The Clippers have an incredible offense and the Dallas has a terrible defense. So there is a world in which for two straight games, the Clippers just get red hot. And they are the best three-point shooting team in the NBA. So that is still possible. Now, as for a way to at least try to limit Luka. So what I would do if I was Tyron Lu is I would, one, put as much offense as I could on the floor at all times. Because that's their best bet. And by the way, that's what Ty Lue does anyway. He's always going to default to more offense. That's that's always been his style. It's been his style in Cleveland. It's been his style everywhere. So I think he's going to do that. And I think you just trap him on every pick and roll. No, no soft doubles like they did earlier in the series. Trap him. He'll make the pass. He's not going to you know get defeated by that. He'll make the pass. But then trust that your defense can cover that four on three. Because there's no one else really on that team that you're really afraid of as a playmaker. There's no Draymond Green who can you know, car up a four on three situation. And I would just say, you know, live with that. They also get theirs and just hope the Clippers score more. I, I think one thing the Clippers need to do is, again, like AC kind of alluded to, is force anyone not named Luka Dantage to make a play and to try to beat them. And one guy who I think might just sabotage the Mavericks, as seemingly it looks like he's trying to do right now, is Kristaps Porzingis, who's been absolutely horrendous this series. So, I mean, I, I gotta ask, because it's kind of shocking that a guy of his size and previous track record of sort of being this unicorn, right? He's a guy that for years people were super high on, and He's sort of coming into the situation where he's supposed to be a second option on a team that has a guy that commands so much attention. So you'd figure that a guy like Kristaps Porzingis would be a bit more effective in a series like this, but he seemingly just hasn't been able to do anything. Yeah, it's honestly kind of sad because he's missing like all of his shots. 
He's like essentially like seven foot three for nothing. His defense has been absolutely atrocious. These guys are like literally attacking him like every single chance they get. And that's probably one way that they could beat them is just keep attacking Porzingis whenever he's on the court because he literally can't stop anyone. And then he doesn't want to take any post ups, even though he's seven foot three and he has a crazy long wingspan. He can probably shoot over anyone, but he doesn't want to take any post ups. And then even like his like three point shots, it's. You know, if he if he wasn't gonna take any post ups, then you would expect him to be this like amazing like spot up shooter, but he's not. So really, like, what kind of second option like has Porzingis been? I mean, like, it's it's crazy to me. Like, I'll probably say like you know like the second best player like, on the Mavs might even honestly I don't know, but I know it's not Porzingis. Maybe Jalen Brunson, but I don't know. Definitely not Porzingis. <laughs> Maybe Eric. <laughs> hey. Hey, Eric, you've been playing it up in these playoffs. <laughs> My doppelganger has been great. But you know what, guys? Just to take the LeBron analogy a little further, just think back. Think back about 13, 14 years. Christoph Porzingis is showing himself to be a slightly better version of Larry Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I think is probably a bit more accurate to say? Ironically, he's like a worse version of Zadrunas Ligalskis. And that's that's like insane to me to think. No, but 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 there's but there's but there's a reason I picked Larry Hughes. Yeah, I think Larry Hughes, when he came from the Wizards to the Cavs, he was looked at as being some type of legitimate second option for LeBron. He was coming off a year where he just had been in consideration for the all-star team and the all-NBA team, and he made, like, the second team all-NBA after averaging, like, 22 points per game playing next to Gilbert Arenas. But in his three years with the Cavs, he was god-awful. His points per game dipped immediately seven points lower and then precipitously declined from there. And within four years after, and remember, this is a guy in his mid-20s when he started playing with LeBron. He was out of the league. So by the time he was 30, Larry Hughes no longer playing. Christoph Porzingis was looked at when Mark Cuban was able to pilfer him from the New York Knicks. And shout out to AC because honestly, AC has been saying for years that Christoph Porzingis was wildly overrated. So... Throw this man his flowers. He's been thank right. you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but Chris Steps has proven himself to be largely one of the greatest waste of height and size. And to get Jay Ballas just you know feeling some way about himself, length that I've ever seen in NBA history. Like you said, he should be able to shoot over anyone. He should be able to post up just about anyone. But for whatever reason. He's completely dependent on Luca creating his shots, and he's not particularly aggressive at all. If he just, and I, I think I said this a couple of podcasts ago, if he just averaged somewhere around the 20 points per game that he was averaging during the regular season, this series would have been over in five games, but he's averaging. 13, 14 points per game this series. And now we're in a game six with them up. But this could have already been closed out. But yeah, Chris Stapps, man. Chris Stapps uh, representing for all the slackers and wildly overrated players. <laughs> I do also think it's 
Rick Carlisle's fault because I don't think he utilizes Kristaps in the way that he should be utilized as Rick Carlisle has even said that he thinks that the the post-up shot is just not a good shot at all like in like today's league which I don't agree with because when you literally have a guy that's seven foot three he should be posting up almost anyone and like I like your analogy when you said that um he's like so dependent on Luca to create a shot it's kind of <laughs> like similar to Rudy Gobert on the Jazz where he's so dependent on everyone else to create his offense it's just the reverse because he's actually an outside shooter yeah I would rather have Rudy Gobert I don't think it's even close let me let me start with this you mentioned Rick Carlisle and by the way Rick Carlisle is correct that a post-up is the least efficient general scoring type in in basketball right now you know there's very few guys who can score an efficient enough rate in the post that it's a worthwhile thing to go to but do you think that if Rick Carlisle actually thought that he had a guy who could post up that he would be saying that now he's saying that to protect Chris Porzingis because this guy does not have a post game. His post game is to turn around, face up, and, and shoot. Now listen, that that works sometimes, but it's basically a mid range jump shot. Oftentimes he fades on it just by being seven foot three, right? And I get it. I'm the Knicks fan, right? So I'm, I, you know, I'm I'm a Porzingis hater. People have accused me of this over the years. What I see is a guy who, on offense, doesn't use his size, who needs someone else to generate offense for him. And to be clear, he does create space for Luka, right? So Luka doesn't have some of the same problems that LeBron does with this Lakers squad because Porzingis can pull guys away from the paint because he can credibly hit a three-pointer. But I don't want my second option to be a guy who needs my first option to generate all of the offense for me. I mean, that's that's a problem, right? I mean, you want him to be able to... If they run a simple pick and roll between Luka Doncic and Porzingis, if they switch that, then there's no way that... I have any faith in Porzingis to punish the switch if there's a littler guy on him. And he doesn't, right? So that's one of the reasons that, you know, this series started out with Kawhi on Porzingis so he can switch Kawhi onto Luka and they don't have to even worry about whoever, say, Patrick Beverly was guarding Luka. They're not worried about Porzingis punishing Patrick Beverly on a switch. I mean, that's that's sad, right? I just think that this guy, apart from his offensive struggles, is also a guy who just can't defend in space. So he is a shot blocker, but he hasn't been the shot blocker he was in New York for a few years now after all of his injuries. But in space, which really is much more important for big men in pick and roll situations to be able to guard in space, he's just not good. So he's playing okay overall if you're just going to use a role player standard for him. But as a second option, I think he's arguably the single worst second option in the playoffs if you factor in that he needs offense generated for him by Luka, which is even more of a strain on Luka. And Eric, I love your comparison to Larry Hughes. I think he's much more of a Larry Hughes as a Junis Olgowskis. Olgowskis could ball at, at least earlier on in LeBron's tenure. It obviously got old pretty soon. And he also eventually needed LeBron to create offense for him. But if you try to put a six foot three guy onto Zerunis Logos because he was going to score in the post, that's not the case with Porzingis right now. And it's pretty sad. Right, right. My, my analogy was just considering like the height, European, you know what I mean? Things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Logos yeah. could ball for sure. No, <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, and I would definitely like, as you said before, just like take Critical Bear over on Porzingis any day because it's just sad that so many people can literally get to um, the paint and he's not doing anything. I've seen Paul George time and time again attack this guy and score in the paint every single time. And it's just sad because, you know, he was a shot blocker in New York and he can't do that here in Dallas when they really need him to. I do think it is possible for the Clippers to come back, especially because they're going to have to play Luka so many minutes. So I hope he doesn't like re-aggravate his injury, but we will have to see because there's no way they're going to be able to win game six without Luka playing at least 40 plus minutes. 
So that makes me want to ask all of you guys a question. Actually, two questions. The first being, where do you guys see this series going as we stand right now? And the second being, if the Mavericks or the Clippers win in the series, how far do you see them going? So as I said before, I predicted even when they were down 2-0, I thought the Clippers would win this in seven because I believe in their overall talent. I think even if Luka has been, I think, pretty obviously the best player in this series, Kawhi and Paul George are just so much better than anybody else on the Mavericks roster. And the Clippers have enough functional depth, although I, I really like Eric's point about that their depth isn't necessarily of quality. Like they have a lot of guys, but they're not necessarily incredible players. But as the series goes on and on, this wear and tear on Luka might actually add up. As I'll be pointed out, you know, I thought towards the end of game five, I know Eric was texting us in our text thread about how Luka looked like he was making some bad decisions. He wasn't playing well the last few minutes of that last game five. And they're almost kind of lucky to have kind of eked it out because of the lead they had earlier coming into the fourth quarter. To me, it's a guy who is showing some signs of fatigue. So I'm worried about him being able to put together one to two more performances like he has so far. I think he'll put it on against the Clippers. And in fact, I expect them to win the next game. I think he's, again, going to smell blood in the water, but I expect them to get bounced in the second round. Well, frankly, I'll be surprised if they win tomorrow against the Clippers, but I think no matter what, like whichever team comes out of this, I think they're going to lose to my Jess. But we'll have to see. <laughs> is, that a, is that a homer pick or is that your legit belief? <laughs> A little bit of both, but I, but it's my legit belief. Yeah, for me, I mean, I agree. I don't think that the Mavericks as a whole have a chance to close out the series tomorrow. I think it will go to a Game 7. I'm not sure who would win the Game 7 because I, I feel like the inexperience coming from the side of Luka if the games get close and he tends to make more of those mistakes in those last couple minutes or he happens to just miss from the free throw line in, in close games where those free throws really matter. I, I think that's a worry for sure. Kawhi and Paul George, while they might make mistakes, I, I don't think that they'll have those specific issues of you know, missing from the free throw line or things like that. But even with that all considered, I do still think the Mavericks might be able to edge it out in a game seven. If they win in six, I'll be surprised. But as far as how far they go, I, I, I agree with Abby. I think any team in the second round, if they meet up with the Jazz, they might run into a little bit of trouble just with how good the Jazz have been. So one last thing I want to say on the Mavs, you know, watching Luka Doncic play this postseason has made me think about something. I think we can now fairly say after what we saw from LeBron this year that you know, maybe he can re-earn this next year if he still has something in it, but he's certainly not the consensus best player in the world anymore, at least in my opinion. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree. I think playoff results matter, and whether he's injured or not, he just didn't look, frankly, even like a top 10 player in the way he was playing in this playoffs. But that begs the question as to who is the best player in the world. And it was always presumed that when he declined, there would be someone like Kevin Durant who would take that position, has long been the second best player in the world. And he might actually ascend to that even this year, depending on how the Nets do. Or maybe Giannis, right? The reigning two-time MVP of the league. I wonder if we're just going to go from LeBron just skipping over the whole Durant generation and Kawhi generation. Because Kawhi was another guy we, we talked about as potentially one of these best players. And even past Giannis, the guy who's won the MVPs right to Luca, who ironically grew up rooting for LeBron and has clearly modeled his game after him. And as Eric said before, is kind of a facsimile of a younger LeBron. I wonder if that's how this all ultimately plays out. Well, that would make sense, AC, considering that Durant is in the same generation as LeBron, whereas Luca will be another generation. So 
it would make more sense that the torch will be passed to a guy in another generation. I, I think we're getting close to LeBron no longer being LeBron. And we saw sprinklings of it this postseason. We have seen that he doesn't bounce back from injuries that previously wouldn't have sidelined him long, but now it has a larger effect on his ability to get back in the starting lineup. So yeah, I I think it's on the horizon that LeBron is no longer going to be the dominant LeBron of yesteryear. But Luca, to me, is showing something of a generational aspect to his talent, which, of course, like Durant has that ability, but Durant also, he's only a few years younger than LeBron. So if LeBron, who largely has been healthier than Durant in his career, is on the downswing, well, Durant's going to be that way as well soon. And Kawhi, no disrespect to Kawhi, but I mean, it's debatable if he was ever the best player at any point. He did win a championship on the Toronto Raptors where he had a a great stretch of two-way play, but there was no consensus on whether Kawhi was the hegemon of sorts and the NBA's like hierarchy of great players. So yeah, I I think it's open for who's going to take that mantle. But if I were betting on it, I would bet that it would be someone from the generation after LeBron than a contemporary like Durant or a guy like Leonard, who, again, I I don't think he was ever quite in the class of LeBron and Kevin Durant. Shout out to Eric for the John Mearsheimer (laughs) real politic hegemon reference. (laughs) You know the vibes. International (laughs) relations, B. (laughs) You know... This is a very good question, AC, and I almost feel like this could be something we definitely talk about in a future pod for sure. It almost makes me wonder whether it's possible to say that the best player in the world is a a player that's not necessarily a two-way player, right? Because I feel like at most points in the league, in the NBA history, whoever the best player was at the time was considered to be a two-way player for most parts of, of their career. Now, if we talk about Kevin Durant, if he's the best player in the world, I wouldn't necessarily jump as far as to say Kevin Durant is some elite defensive stopper, but he has been known to to make big defensive plays when they count, right? Similarly with Kawhi, he's a, he's a guy who's a renowned two-way player. Even a guy like Giannis, he's a great two-way player as well. With Luka, I feel like as far as playmaking and talent goes, he is definitely right underneath LeBron in terms of, of those aspects. And I do think with time, Luka might develop into becoming a good defender. I wouldn't say a great defender, but he has the tools. He has the height. He has the weight. If he can develop a better lateral quickness with himself, his reaction timing could be a little bit better. But things of that nature, if they were to show some improvement, you know, you could really say the sky's the limit for this kid. So. To be honest with you, I'm not sure, but I think Luca does have a good shot at maybe getting that title at some point. I wouldn't say that Luca is the best player in the league right now, but I do think that one day he will be. But I just think that if LeBron isn't the best player, I guess you would just give that title to Durant because he hasn't had the same kind of fall off that LeBron has. And as Anu like alluded to, Durant is no slouch when it comes to defense. Like I've seen this guy get very clutch blocks, and this guy is really good on defense but his offense he's probably the best offensive talent that the league has ever seen in terms of like what he can do like his ability to be able to handle the ball 
his driving, his shooting is just phenomenal. So I would probably say that if we're not going to consider LeBron the best player, then we would have to give it to Kevin Durant. But so my only thing about, and I, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer with Durant, it seems to me that as far as carrying a team, Durant doesn't have the resume that a person like LeBron has. And it seems also at this moment, Luca is making a bigger resume than a young Durant had as far as carrying a team bereft of talent or bereft of a lot of talent. He seems, again, more similar to LeBron. And currently, Durant himself is playing with an overload of talent. So I have no clue how to gauge that as far as being the best. Once again, too, the second time this guy has been on some ridiculous squad like this. It's just like, so we're, we're going to say, well, it should default to Kevin Durant. Well, <laughs> Kevin Durant played on a team that had won 73 wins, and then he went to that team and won some championships. And then our like perception of him changed from him literally choking against that 73-win team when he was up 3-1 and not being looked at as a particular either winner or leader of that team because a lot of people who actually played on that team said the leader of that team was Russell Westbrook somehow, some way. And, and now after being out and losing his last championship against Kawhi Leonard, and admittedly he had the catastrophic injury. So I'm not saying they lost because of Kevin Durant, but they lost. And then he goes to this team. He teams up with Kyrie Irving, a top three-point guard in the league. I think that's fairly safe to say. No. And then he teams up with James Harden, another MVP, just like Kevin Durant in his prime, who's also one of the greatest offensive talents the league has ever seen. So I have no clue how to gauge whether he's better right now than Luka Doncic and, and Luka Doncic, his infancy of his career, no more than in 2010 or 2011, even though LeBron wasn't winning how he ended up winning, I wasn't exactly sure how to gauge him against Kobe Bryant because Kobe Bryant had a wealth of talent around him that LeBron didn't. You know, Eric, that's a really interesting way to put it because it, it makes you think like, what is the way to gauge who is the best player in the league? Like, do we gauge it solely based on the skill of the player or, you know, the situation of the player? And it's something that, I mean, for sure, when you talk about who the greatest players of all time, it's something that comes into conversation quite often, honestly. But when we think about it in just the sense of, okay, who is just top tier player right now in the league based on skill? You know, that's not something I've ever actually thought about, but, you know, given the situation and how easy it must be for Kevin Durant to just play the game of basketball, considering the wealth of talent that's around him, you know, it, it does make you wonder a little bit, like maybe he's only the best because of, you know, X circumstance. But, you know, I guess this is a topic that can be debated for <laughs> for hours, you know, so, you know, definitely something we should talk about further in, in, in a podcast in the future. No doubt. So for L.A., it's the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's mostly been the worst of time for these guys in the playoffs. Was that like some Dickensian quote? 
Yes. Tale of two cities. Yep, except it's the tale of one city here. And it's kind of crazy to think about that these two teams at the start of this season were the championship favorites. Obviously, that's before the Nets were assembled. But I don't think anyone thought that the Lakers would flame out in round one. And the Clippers now are on the verge of the same thing. So all eyes were on LA and what looks to be a wide open championship race. And you know, in our upcoming pods, we'll definitely cover your jazz, Abby. But I, I do want to thank you for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. And good luck to your team. Sadly now, Eric's LeBron team or Lakers, how he wants to call it. My Knicks, Anu's Raptors are all out. Only us, we Sixers are around still. First <laughs> off, we... first off, I just want to add, one of those people are not like the other two people. <laughs> <laughs> Rather it should be Eric's LeBron. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh Anu's team didn't make the playoffs. I just want that pointed out. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, man. Hey, we don't talk about that here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in today, guys. We had tons of fun talking and covering the playoffs so far, and we really hope you tune in for future episodes. So please don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe to wherever you catch your podcast, and hope you join us in the next one. Take care, y'all. Take care, everyone. Deuces!